Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games. I'm Christian Napier, and I am really pleased today to be joined by Tom Kelly. And this is the first podcast where we've had someone not directly employed by a slock or a contractor, but really a stakeholder. And it's awesome to get a stakeholder perspective on this. And Tom, as a veteran of this space and has a million stories to share with everybody. So I'm super excited, Tom, to have you. Welcome. Well, thank you, Christian. It's really great to be here. I've so enjoyed listening to the podcast over the last few months. And uh, I was hoping that even though I wasn't an actual slock employee, that I could maybe get on and share some history and share some stories. And it's also been good to look back and and know that uh, so many good friendships that I made back then have continued on and great to hear from some of those who I haven't heard from in a few years as well. So thank you for doing this. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. And I think it's great to have different viewpoints because we can get a more holistic view on the delivery of these games. And so I really appreciate your willingness to come on here and and share your stories. Before we dive into the past, though, let's talk a little bit about the present. Uh, Where do you happen to be joining us from at the moment? And what are you doing these days? Well, I'm in Park City, Utah, where I've been uh, sequestered pretty much for the last few months. Uh, I was just thinking this morning, uh, other than the little three or four hour drives my wife Carol and I tend to do uh, in our free time, been anywhere. We haven't stayed anywhere else now in about five months. Uh, my last road trip was one to Japan, to Tokyo in February to look at sites for the uh, uh, winter or the summer games, which were supposed to be happening in July, but that's not going to happen until next year. So so I'm having a good time up here in Park City. It's been a great place to be for the last months. I hope those games, they really pan out in 2021. I think they could be uh, an amazing inflection point for the movement and also a restoration of the public confidence in sport. So fingers crossed that those games happen and that we can get over this COVID craziness that we're all dealing with at the moment. Yeah, all of us are kind of gravitating to that message point right now that these games next year could really be unifying for the world. I was happy to hear that uh, when Fraser mentioned that in his podcast episode with you a short time ago. Uh, but I do feel that Tokyo 2021 really could bring the world together through sport. Well, I can obviously tell that sport is a central theme in your life because you've got sport gear on from head to toe and you've got sport motifs on the wall behind you. You've got a Rio Olympic hat, uh, NBC hat on. Um, so why don't you just give us a little bit of the background as what you're doing in the world of sport? Well, sport has been very important to me. And my, my quick backstory, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. And at the age of seven, mom put the Winter Olympics on TV. And it, as a seven-year-old, I watched the Squaw Valley Olympics in uh, 19 uh, or 1960 and saw Penny Patu win the silver medal in the downhill. And I was just really hooked. And I gravitated next uh, to becoming a photographer for the ski jumping that took place in Madison and just kind of parlayed my way up until getting a full-time job with the U.S. Ski Association in 1986. We moved here to Utah in 1988 with the organization consolidating with the U.S. ski team. And I spent my the entire rest of my career in Olympic sport. I retired from that role in uh, 2018 after the PyeongChang Olympics. And now I'm doing uh, consulting for a wide range of Olympic clients and very much involved in the future efforts for the Olympics, hopefully coming back to Utah. Well, I hope they come back. I am desperate for the games to come back here. It would be a nice coda to the career and uh, it would be wonderful for the state, I think, to have the games here in 2030. 
you've been in it since you were seven years old. Uh, the games come to Salt Lake. You're part of the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association. Tell us about your involvement there and how you eventually made your way to um, helping out through the stakeholder, through the federation or the national governing body, the Salt Lake 2002 Games. Well, it was an interesting pathway. When we moved here in 1988 with the U.S. Ski Association, our executive director at the time was Howard Peterson. Many would know Howard from his role at Soldier Hollow, and he sadly passed this uh, this spring. But Howard had an initiative that wasn't Salt Lake City related at all. It was Olympic related, and he was pushing an agenda with the U.S. Olympic Committee to pick a Winter Olympic site candidate for the U.S., not based on its own history, but based on its willingness to to provide legacy, to build the venues and to keep those venues active after the games. Anchorage was the heir apparent at that point. It had been bidding for a couple of cycles and it expected that it too would be the U.S. selection to bid for 1998. Uh, But Howard was persistent with this. The candidate cities at the time were Lake Placid, Denver, Salt Lake City, City, Reno, Tahoe, Klamath Falls, Oregon, and probably a few others, and, and Anchorage, of course. And very few of those cities really picked up on that legacy concept, but Howard was just vigilant in his efforts. And ultimately, Dave Johnson, Tom Welch, and the others with the then Salt Lake Bid Committee realized the importance of it. They committed to the legacy, and that's ultimately what got them the U.S. nod in June of 1989 by a mere two votes in in Des Moines, Iowa. Wow. So the U.S. survives the domestic competition, but then has to go against some really uh, substantial international competitors eventually falling to Nagano. What was your view on the Nagano bid the 1998 bid and then evolving into the Salt Lake 2002 bid. Well, I th- I, as I look back, and I think everyone has this feeling, when you look back in time, you kind of think, boy, I was naive at the time. I really didn't know much at the time. But I, I think all of us thought Salt Lake City, you know, Hans against Nagano, but there was a overwhelming support for bringing the games to to Japan. I don't remember the the uh, uh, the margin on that. Uh, my good friend Mike Korologos, who was the historian of the era, would be another good person to talk to. Uh, but it was a disappointment to not get those games. Uh, those Nagano games actually were were quite exciting, and I actually I visited those sites just a few months ago when I was over uh, in Tokyo. Those were the games where Peekaboo Street uh, won a stunning gold medal in the in the super g uh but but then to come back and get it in in 2002 uh uh it was the destiny and talk about your role at that time with the u.s ski and snowboard association as it related specifically to the organization of the salt lake 2002 games well, my my role was really just in skiing, and we were very engaged. Uh, I actually had become really good friends with Dave Johnson, and uh, he at the time was uh, uh, really the man making it happen for the Utah Sports Foundation. Uh, that was kind of the predecessor of the organizations that were yet to come. But my focus was really uh, just on 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 skiing at the time. Snowboarding wasn't even around at at, at that point. Uh, but but I have some great memories, and one of those. Was was uh, in the selection of the the venue sites, in particular ski jumping. Ski jumping in Calgary in 1988 had been a disaster. The the jumps were just located in an area that was the weather never cooperated. So the 
Salt Lake bid officials were really looking for that ideal site. And I remember them putting weather monitoring stations at probably a half or dozen or more locations around the Wasatch. And one of those was the eventual site at what became the Utah Olympic Park. And every time I go up there and I go up to the jumps, I look at that weather station. It's still there today, however many 30 some years later. But they they picked a site that actually worked out pretty well. So being involved in that process and looking at the venues, the cross-country venue was another one that shifted locations a number of times. Folks may recall a World Cup that was run, a cross-country World Cup at Mountain Dell in the late 80s. Uh, that was that showed that that site just wasn't going to work and fortunately it ended up at soldier hollow which has become an amazing legacy site yeah i just talked to colin hilton yesterday and uh, he was telling me how you know the recent addition of soldier hollow to the utah olympic legacy foundation's cadre of venues um i think that's fantastic and i'm i'm really excited about the long-term prospects for soldier hollow so uh, coming back to the Salt Lake 2002 games, then, as you mentioned, you've got these various stakeholders involved. You have the communities, you have the national governing body, as you mentioned, you have the USOC, now USOPC, and you have the International Federation, FIS. So uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the interplay between all of these various stakeholders in order to deliver this event successfully. Well, it's a bit of alphabet soup and can be very confusing, but the International Olympic Committee oversees Olympic competition around the world. And there are, uh, I don't know the number, but it's over 100 uh, National Olympic Committees who report up to the International Olympic Committee, and they're involved with Olympic sports, summer and winter. The International Sport Federations, of which there are more than 50, they're specific to the actual sports. So the one that I've worked with, the International Ski Federation, works specifically with skiing and now snowboarding. The International Biathlon Union is another one that I work with. They work with biathlon. So they're responsible for the specific rules and the conduct of each of those individual sports. Now, they all need to come together to produce an Olympic Games and to work with the local organizing committee, which in this case was uh, was SLOC. So SLOC had to have strong relationships within the IOC with all of the National Olympic Committees. And they also needed to have a very good relationship with the six, seven or international sport federations whose sports were going to be conducted in Salt Lake City. So it's it's very, very challenging. My job was really much easier because I only managed one sport, sport of skiing. It is one sport, but it's spread across multiple venues, right? You had snow basin there with the downhill. You had alpine events in uh, Park City Mountain Resort. You had freestyle skiing aerials there in uh, Deer Valley. So you had these multiple venues. And then you had Utah Olympic Park there with the ski jumps. So so there were a lot of venues involved there, even though it's one quote unquote sport of skiing. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about some of those venues and maybe some of the relative strengths and also some of the challenges that you felt or from a from a national governing body perspective, you felt um, were there any specific challenges with any of those uh, particular venues 
anything that you needed to do to kind of resolve some of those challenges? Well, as a sports organization, we always look at an Olympics by the quality of the venues and Salt Lake's venues were really outstanding for sport. All of the pageantry and the other emotion that goes into the games, that's all very important. But a sport federation's job is to make sure that the venues are, are going to be great for the athletes. So just to run down the venues we had in skiing and skiing and now snowboarding accounts for about 50% of the medals at the winter games. So as you said, it is actually a little bit complex, but first of all, the Alpine skiing venues, and let's start with Park City and Deer Valley. There had been some jockeying back and forth with uh, some of the events. Originally, the freestyle events, moguls and aerials were set for Deer Valley, and the Alpine skiing events, giant slalom and slalom, were set for Park City. But with the advent of snowboarding, snowboarding was eventually uh, designated to be at Park City. Now, what's interesting, and some folks may remember this, at the time of the bid, Park City actually did not allow snowboarding. Snowboarding wasn't allowed at Park City until sometime in the late 90s. Uh, so it was a little bit ironic that it was going to be the Olympic snowboard site, but didn't allow the sport uh, at its resort. Now, of course, it, it, it does. So when snowboard was added, those events went to Park City and the slalom event was moved over to Deer Valley, which seems a little bit unusual. And uh, there's... There's really no alpine ski racing taking place at Deer Valley. There hasn't been really since the games, but it was a perfect slalom slope uh, to finish up the games located right next to the Moguls Run. So those venues, uh, both for freestyle, for alpine, and also for snowboarding, were world-class venues. For the speed events, the downhill is always one of the toughest events to site at any Olympic any Olympics. It went to Snow Basin, truly outstanding downhill uh, for the men and for the women. Uh, unfortunately, that's the one venue that hasn't really had a legacy. We are encouraged that Snow Basin is kind of back in the game and uh, in talking with Davey Ratchford, who's the manager up there now, a good opportunity to bring that downhill back for whenever the Olympics come back here. The ski jumping venues and Nordic combined venues at the Utah Olympic Park were stunning. Uh, Simon Amman uh, from Switzerland winning both of those jumping events. And the cross-country venue that ended up at Soldier Hollow, that was just the classiest venue of the games. People had a great job over there. Phil Jordan, who managed that venue, did a magnificent job in mixing entertainment with competition and creating a great atmosphere for the fans. So all in all, the ski and snowboard venues in Salt Lake City were magnificent. It's important, as you said, athletes first, right? And and as a national governing body, you're thinking about your athletes primarily, which are the the athletes of the United States of America. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about some of the the preparation that went into maximize the performance of the athletes and ensure their success there in Salt Lake? Well, one of the things that we've always tried to do when we have a hometown championships is to get on those venues as much as possible. So we scheduled a lot of training on those venues. We scheduled U.S. championships. We scheduled test events, World Cups to bring the international fields there. So we spent as much time as possible. We conducted a number of Alpine championships uh, to utilize the venues up at Snow 
Hollow Basin. We did the same with Cross Country to get on those venues out at Soldier Hollow. Uh, we did it with Freestyle at Deer Valley. In fact, one great story of the games was uh, Shannon Barkey, who ended up winning silver in the Moguls competition. She actually qualified in an event that we scheduled at Deer Valley uh, that was a winner-take-all event. If you won that event, which was held over the Christmas holiday, then you would get an Olympic slot. She won that event, came from nowhere, and went on to win an Olympic silver medal. So that's why we try to get on the venues as much as possible to give us that home snow advantage when it comes games time. Well, that's excellent. Thank you so much for that and giving us that additional insight. We've been having these conversations with various people within the organizing committee, and it's really been focused on the planning and organization of the games. And it's really fun to have this fresh perspective uh, from a more athlete-centered point of view. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing that. And speaking of that, it ended up being a fantastic event for the athletes. Uh, Why don't you uh, share for us some of the stories about some of the amazing athletic performances there in Salt Lake? Well, it it, it really was amazing for us. We won 10 medals, which at the time was the most we'd ever won in history. Uh, We ultimately went on uh, uh, eight years later in Vancouver to win 21, which is uh, quite a big jump. But winning 10 medals was was just a great experience for us. Uh, Bodie Miller uh, was a, a real newcomer to the scene. He had really only burst onto the international uh, limelight in the months preceding the Salt Lake Games, but the uh, the medals that he won in the combined event, uh, which is a combination of slalom and downhill skiing, and also in the giant slalom were were just legendary and really breakthrough for us uh, as, as a team. Uh, freestyle was really a forte of us uh, coming in. Uh, we won two medals in moguls, Shannon Barkey, Silver, uh, and then Travis Mayer winning the next day, uh, winning the bronze. Uh, then in uh, aerials, uh, we went in with the defending champions. Uh, we had great hopes for Eric Burgess, but he just didn't quite uh, uh, get back to the medal stand. But Joe Pack, the hometown hero, ended up uh, winning the silver medal there, which was a really glorious day. Snowboarding proved to be a, a real strong point for us. We had we had been doing well in the sport, but we certainly were never looked at as a a nation that would come in and dominate. Uh, But I'll never forget that day of coming over to Park City Mountain and walking into the venue a little bit late that day because I'd been up at Snow Basin and trying to figure out what was going on with the scoreboard when there were three Americans in one, two, three place. And Ross Powers winning the gold there, but sweeping the podium was just a, a remarkable highlight of the games. And then Kelly Clark, who's uh, who I've become great friends with over the years, uh, just a young girl at 19 winning the women's gold medal. So so for us in sport, it, it, was, a, it was a great success. We had a couple of near misses, including over in cross country, uh, and and in order to combine, but uh, just overall, it was a very successful games for us. You mentioned there that uh, you more than doubled the, when I say you, I mean the United States uh, uh, ski team or the U- U.S. Olympic team, I should say, uh, more than doubled its medal count uh, from Salt Lake to Vancouver. So in a span of eight years, you went from 10 uh, to 21. And I'd like to know how the Salt Lake 2002 games contributed to that, you know, by helping to establish and solidify the foundation for high performance winter sport. 
Well, it was a pivotal point for us, but I'm going to take it back a little bit earlier. We had hired a new uh, president and CEO, Bill Marolt, in 1996. And Bill came in with a long background with the team. He had been Alpine director in its most successful era in the 80s. He had won a national football title as the athletic director at the University of Colorado. So he was hired in 1996 to come in. And I remember we did a press conference with him at the airport. Uh, It was just a packed house. Uh, to welcome him. And over the next year, he got us all together. I was the head of communications at the time, and we formulated a strategic plan. And in those sessions, which were held up at Canyons Resort in 1997, we set a vision of becoming the best in the world in Olympic skiing and snowboarding. None of us knew what that meant, but we were going to be best in the world. And I remember our athletic director at the time, Paul Major, Uh, Paul sat down with us at, uh, I think it was the Marriott in Salt Lake City after we'd had a meeting with uh, 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 Dave and uh, Dave Welch and and, uh, Dave Johnson and Tom Welch. And he mapped out on a a cocktail uh, uh, napkin 20 in 02. And he was setting a goal for us to win 20 medals in 2002. And he mapped out how we could do that. Now, we all thought that was a little bit crazy. In fact, it was. But it was that kind of thinking of setting those lofty goals that got us to 10 medals in 2002 and eventually got us to 21 medals in 2010. So those Salt Lake Games were really pivotal to that eventual success. Tell me a little bit about the, the change in leadership in the Salt Lake Organizing Committee, because you're working with the U.S. Uh, Ski Association from the outset, as you said, from the 80s all the way through past the conclusion of the games. And you go through set, uh, a few regime changes, right? You talked about Tom Welch there, Dave Johnson at the beginning, and then you've got the Frank Jocklick era, and then you come over to Mitten Fraser. So from a national govern- governing body perspective, how are those changes perceived and and what kinds of adjustments, if any, did you need to make to accommodate those changes? Well, it's an interesting question. And I think as I look back on it, I don't know that we really made any adjustments because of that. We're doing our thing. The Olympics are one stop on our schedule. So those changes didn't disrupt what we were doing at all. We were pretty close to everything that was going on. Um, I have my own personal opinions on, on that particular era. It ended up okay. Uh, I feel badly that We all had to go through that situation in 1999, which continued on for several years. Uh, But it is what it is. And we just persevered. It didn't impact us directly. We just kept our focus going. We still had other things. We had world championships. We had the World Cup every year. Uh, Salt Lake City was coming up in 02, and we just kind of took it as it came. So those changes in leadership really didn't change our focus. But as I look back now, uh, you know, I, I, I am a big fan of what Dave Johnson did in helping to get the bid. But when you ultimately look at how it ended up with Mitt Romney coming in to run that, that really is what helped make it the best games ever. So that didn't impact us as we led up to the games, but ultimately it made it a better Olympic winter games. It's interesting that you mentioned this term best games ever, you know, the IOC, you know, Samaranch would always be getting up at the closing ceremony and say the best games ever. And and that kind of became the running theme, right? Every successful or successive 
games edition became the the best games ever and then that changed a bit when uh he left and rogue came in and 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 since and so they have different adjectives to describe those games but from everybody that we've talked to on the podcast there's no doubt that the games are perceived by both those who just had a one a single stop here in salt lake or for those who have been involved in this industry over time that salt lake was special in your perspective having been involved in this for decades and having seen many different olympic games what was it that made the Salt Lake Games special? Well, I'm asked this question a lot. I've been to 10 Olympics, and here's my my answer, and then I'll give you a little analysis of Salt Lake. But when I ask, what's the best games you've ever been to? I mentioned two. I mentioned Salt Lake City for sure in 2002, but I also mentioned Lillehammer in 1994. And I want to first speak to Lillehammer. What made those games so amazing was not just what they did in putting on the games, but it's the culture that existed there. You can't replicate that anywhere else. But being in the cradle of the sport of skiing in Norway, being in a culture where all seven or eight million people in the country are passionate about winter sport, who will walk. I, I'm The best example I can give, we, we stayed in Lillehammer up on the top of the mountain in Hafjell, just north of Lillehammer. And every day I would take either take a bus or take a chairlift back to my uh, accommodations. So I was on a chairlift one day with a couple of other skiers who had cross-country skis and they had little pieces of firewood in their backpack and they were taking the chairlift up in order to ski 15 kilometers to camp out overnight to have a front row seat for one of the cross-country races. Now you can't replicate that. That's why I always include Lillehammer. But in terms of actual production of the games, you really can't top what Salt Lake City did, the pageantry, the quality of the venues, the people. And that's the piece that we still feel today now, uh, however many years later, nearly 20 years later, we still feel the people and the spirit. And again, that's something you can't replicate. That's our Lillehammer, the spirit of the people here in Utah. It's interesting you make that that comparison, or not necessarily comparison, but just talking about those two cities because... Lillehammer is viewed by many as kind of the last games of that era, right? It, uh, Salt Lake City was a was more cosmopolitan, but also uh, in some respects, it was the last of its era. It was the last Olympic Winter Games to have a single athlete village, and um, and not necessarily have things concentrated in an Olympic park, but have venues dispersed throughout the community and surrounding towns, and um, and I think that helped make it special too. I want to ask you a little bit about the the growth of the sport. It's certainly grown here in Utah, and um, skiing has grown in in popularity. You know, how is how is the sport, in your view, over these last uh, 20, 25 years evolved, and where do you think it's headed? Well, ski, one of the things that I take a lot of pride in or with my organization is what we have done to advance the sport of skiing and snowboarding over the years. Uh, going back really 35, 40 years ago, and Howard Peterson was the original architect, our organization always focused on what are the kids doing? What do they want to do? And how do we evolve our sport? How do we bring in new things? So freestyle skiing, the U.S. led the way with freestyle skiing back in the 70s and 80s. Snowboarding, we led the way in the 90s with snowboarding. Free ski, we led the the, the way there as, as well. And being constantly on the lookout for those new events that people 
do. We kept our sport fresh. And that's one of the reasons why 50% of the Winter Olympic Games are skiing and snowboarding right now. I really am excited about what's happening in the summer right now. If we you know, when we get to Tokyo in 2021, we're going to see surfing for the first time. We're going to see skateboarding for the first time. We've now seen BMX. We've, we have sport climbing, which is based right here in Salt Lake City. So these are exciting new sports coming into the Olympics. And I think it's important for every international sports federation to look at what are the kids doing and how should we evolve our sport? Well, one of the challenges, I think probably the biggest challenge long term for the health of the winter sports is the availability of climate to host these sports, you know, and that's one of the challenges that people are talking about is the, as the planet is warming that uh, the number of cities that can host uh, sports, not just in Olympic Games, but as you mentioned, uh, World Cup circuits and so on it starts diminishing, you know, I'm curious just to get, get your take, you know, from a, from a ski veteran perspective on how the climate is changing and how the sport may evolve to accommodate the changes in climate. Well, by nature, those who participate in outdoor activities, particularly skiing and snowboarding, are very much engaged in uh, uh, sustainability. And to me, sustainability is not necessarily climate change. It's just being a good steward of everything that's around us. We do see changes in our sport. It does force us to address it with calendaring or other ways of conducting the sport. Uh, I still see a long future for skiing, but we have to take care of what we have. Uh, so you'll find uh, outdoor athletes, particularly skiers and snowboard, snowboarders very engaged in just bringing awareness to the topic. I don't see dramatic changes happening tomorrow, but clearly they are. I go to places in Europe, like I did a trip to Sasfe a couple of years ago, and I went up the, the tram and I looked down and there had been a glacier there maybe five, 10 years earlier. It wasn't there anymore. It's gone forever. I go to Solden, Austria, and the glacier still is quite active and good there, but it isn't as big as it was 20, 25 years ago. So we have to be conscious of this and just take care of what we have. I really appreciate you bringing up the fact that athletes can make a difference. And it reminds me of a story from Tokyo. You talked about new sports like surfing. And I was in Tokyo last year and I was talking with some people there and we were talking about the sport of surfing. And they mentioned how impressed they were that the athletes, you know, after coming off a surfing run, uh, they get up to the beach and you see these athletes just walking around picking up trash on the beach. Nobody told them to do it. They're just doing it because they care about their environment. They care about their field of play, so to speak. And it, it awakens something in the community. Hey, we need to take better care of our beaches. Here are these athletes, you know, the, they're best in the world. and They're here competing and look at them. They, they get off their surfboard and they come to the beach and yeah. they're picking up trash. You know, we can learn something about that. And, and so these very small, simple ways that the athletes can show by their example, how important it is to be good stewards, as you mentioned, good stewards of the environment. I think that's a fantastic lesson. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. You know, we can all learn lessons from athletes. I, I, I look sometimes even to our International Sports Federation, uh, FIS, uh, 
the athletes lead the way. The athletes are the one who, who are coming up with the future direction. It doesn't often emanate from international sports federations. I think the IOC has done a decent job here, but you have to listen to the athletes. The athletes are the ones who we should be vesting our future interest in. They're the ones who know the pathway. And the more our organization worked with athletes, we found great success in that. So I, I, it, I can't say enough about how important it is to pay attention to what the athletes are saying and doing. They're the future. Absolutely, they are. And I have to say this conversation for me has been a revelation. I've really enjoyed it. And we typically end with some assignments, but before we get to those assignments, I want to make sure we've covered everything on your list. Is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you want to highlight before we get to the final segment? No, I think this is this has really been exciting, and I think it's a good complement to what we've heard from uh, the the many uh, Salt Lake Olympic Committee staffers and contractors who've been on the program. So I, I have my assignments ready. I'm going to be a little bit out there on some of them, but uh, hit me up, Christian. All right, let's do it. Let's go to the music assignment first. Uh, what about a song? Well, I honestly couldn't come up with a song. And I started thinking, what are what are my memories of the Salt Lake game? So I'm going to be a little bit out there and a little bit different. And you for sure are not going to find this one on Spotify. But my best friend is Peter Graves, who was the stadium announcer at the opening and closing ceremonies. And he was also the one who did most all of the recorded voices that you'd hear going into the venue. So please stay to your left as you enter the venue. Welcome to the Salt Lake City International Airport and those kind of things. And when Peter stays over with us, my wife, Carol, and I have this joke. Hey, how's everything going this morning? I'm going to have myself a cup of coffee. And that was Peter in his voice. And he was on Christy Nicolay's uh, sports production team. And and I also, uh, uh, actually, in fairness, I was a part-time contractor to Slock. I did some consulting with Christy uh, on the games. But so my song isn't going to be a song. It's going to be Peter Graves' voice coming into the venues. Well, maybe we can put a uh, YouTube link on the site that will link to uh, Peter Graves highlights. So thank you for giving us that unconventional but really inspired choice. I really appreciate that. How about food? Food uh, was another interesting one. Unlike the Slock employees, I didn't live and work downtown in Salt Lake City. So my visits there were a little bit less frequent, but we would go down to Salt Lake. And probably one of my biggest scores uh, of the games was getting a $150 parking permit for the entire month of the games at the lot right next to Bocce and Cafe Pierpont. And I'm going to go with ca- with uh, Bocce. Uh, we loved going to Bocce. Unfortunately, it went away in 2006, but uh, I had a parking spot right next to it. So every night I would go down after the events, I would go work in the media center uh, at the uh, uh, convention center, and then I would probably go over and try to get a dinner or something at Bocce. And my favorite menu item there were the rolls, the Bocce rolls. That's an excellent choice, Bocce, a great place. And I also loved Cafe Pierpont too. And the carnitas they had were really, yeah. really good there. So, sad to see those go, but I definitely will put Bocce on our list. We won't be able to put it on the map necessarily, but I'll put it on our list of restaurants. So thank you very much for Bocce. That's a great nomination. And finally, we wrap up with our goosebump moment. And you've already told us so many moments from competition, but what is it that uh, when you look back at, on it today, it just uh, just warms your heart? I'm not going to pick a moment in the games then, but what I'm going to pick as my goosebump moment is 
every single day today that I wake up and know that all of those venues are still in use and kids, thousands in Utah, are having an opportunity to have fun on Olympic venues because this organizing committee adopted that concept and has kept that alive. That's why more than 80% of the people in the state of Utah want the games to return. It's because of that legacy. And for me, it's a goosebump moment that I relive every single day. It's a fantastic goosebump moment. And you know what? We can almost take it for granted, but you're right. If we take a step back and think to ourselves, gosh, I am skating on Olympic ice. I am skating on the same ice that Derek Parra skated on, or I'm going down the luge or yeah, I mean, you're right. It's just uh, incredible that we have that great opportunity and I'm grateful uh, for the foresight going back all, as you said, to Dave Johnson and Tom Welsh. Uh, to help build this legacy that we still enjoy today. And I hope that we can fortify that legacy as we move forward in the future by hosting another games here. Well, I'm sure we will. And I'm uh, happy to be a part of that effort. And thank you for keeping the torch burning and bringing back the team to uh, talk once again about the the great 2002 Olympic Winter Games and Paralympic Winter Games here in Salt Lake City. Well, it's been a huge amount of fun and an honor for me to speak with you and so many of our other guests Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll talk with you again next week. Tom, thank you so much. Thank you.